It's 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. For the last two hours and approximately 25 minutes, we've been bringing you continuing coverage of the state funeral of the 41st president of the United States. I, I part of a personal level, I appreciate our management here at Good Karma Broadcasting allow us, allowing us to bring that to you wall to wall. It's, uh, it is, it is just unquestionably, it, it's a moment in history. There, there's no, there is no doubt about it. I had a couple observations, and then after the bottom of the news, I want to open up the, the phone lines to talk a little bit about what you heard, or perhaps if you were watching television, what you perhaps saw over the course of the last two hours and 20 minutes. I, I think what the first thought I had, just uh, apart from the, the content of the, the service itself, which I'll talk about in just a moment, can you imagine what security must be like, must have been like? I mean, you have all the living presidents that that are in attendance and all the world dignitaries and you have all these people there can you imagine what security must have been like outside the, the cathedral i mean it just it, it must have been unbelievable you really didn't get a sense of that listening to the radio coverage or watching the television coverage of it but i, I can only imagine the the law enforcement presence that was there to guarantee the security of, of everyone just kind of amazing in that regard that the second observation i had and i saw this as i was as the, the the TV cameras, at least, were focused on the, the the remaining living presidents who were all sitting in one of the pews. You had President Trump and his wife. You had um, President Obama. You had President Clinton. You had President Carter, and then, of course, with the family pew, you had, pew, you had uh, President George H., uh, George W. Bush. And one of the things that really struck me is if if you were one of of those people, if you are President Clinton or President Obama or President Trump or President Carter or President Bush, you have to be sitting there and you got to be thinking, what's it going to be like? What's it going to be like when when I, I pass away? Is is this are is this many people going to come? Is it going to be a service like this? And, and you just you would think that they almost have to be thinking of, of something like that. You, you just couldn't escape it. Bigger picture there, I thought as I thought it was just an outstanding, an outstanding service. I know that's kind of somewhat odd to say about funerals. I mean, how do you how do you describe funerals? I mean, it's a time of sadness, but I I think the the funeral captured the spirit and the essence of President Bush. I, I think there's no question about it, and the fact that he apparently was intimately involved in the planning of it, I think you know represents his his personality and his philosophy and i think it it hit that it hit that appropriate tone it was somber it was respectful at the same time there there were the, the flashes of humor and i think through the eulogies you did get a sense of of what type of person president bush was not just his time as a public servant or his time in the military but also you know his 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 role and his time as a, as a father and a, as a friend and as a man in the community. And I think it was just exceptionally, exceptionally well done. And I mean, it was this, this sort of mixture of, of sadness and, and joy that I think was just absolutely appropriate. The other thing that, the other thing that I was struck by listening to the service and the remarks was, you know, President Bush really was a man from a, a, a different Time. Now, there's always been political infighting, and there's always been, all right, uh, you know, partisanship. But, you know, things changed. 
really after President Bush left office, the first President Bush, and, and you saw the the reaction, you saw the way the, the Clinton administration operated and the way the Republicans who, you know, were, were battling President Clinton all the time. And then, of course, for the administration of George W. Bush, you saw just the, the, the naked partisanship. You had people on the other side who never thought his presidency was legitimate because of the 2000 Gore-Bush election. Then you had the absolute hatred that was dev- devoted and directed towards him after his involvement in the Iraq war and then of course you you saw President Obama come on and of course you, you had just the the incredible partisanship that continued through the Obama years and now we're probably at the zenith of that that's where we're going to start the program in just a couple minutes but right now it's 12:30 let's go to the WTMJ breaking news center here's Mike Spaulding thank you Jeff wrapping up just now It's 12.36, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. Last two hours and 20 minutes or so, we were spent covering wall-to-wall the state funeral of the 41st President of the United States, George Bush. I I said the other day, I had the opportunity to meet President Bush twice, once and, and I mean, I, I heard him speak a couple of times. I remember during the 1992 political campaign, you know, going going to a political event. But uh, I'm, I'm not including that. I mean, I had the opportunity to, in a sort of small group setting, meet him once in the 80s when he was vice president and once when he was the, the president in a small group setting and, and actually you know, talk to him for a couple minutes and shake his hand. And I, I came away very impressed. I mean, my... My take at the time was this is just a, a really very decent, caring guy who is out there trying to do the best. Might not have been the best politician in the world. Might have made some mistakes, including this uh, read my lips, no new taxes. And then he signed on to a tax increase plan that ended up you know, ending his administration. Um, it, it led to the rise of Ross Perot. And, and people forget about the 1992 election. I mean, Bill Clinton was elected with 43 per, 43% of, of the vote. Uh, President Bush drew around 37%, and the remaining 18-plus percent went to Ross Perot. People forget that. Ross Perot, if he does not run and play spoiler, I, I don't think there's any question that you, you don't have Bill Clinton elected in 1992, but that's not how things worked out, and, and it's interesting. I want to open up the phone lines, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I have a, a broader question and, and and that is, how is history going to remember President Bush? You know, we we live so much in the moment, and and we react. Our, our news cycles nowadays are, are twenty four. It's twenty four seven, and it seems like we bounce from one crisis to another. We bounce from one outrage to another. Something that has everybody so upset and thinking it's going to cause the world to end. Well, a week later, we're on to something different that's got everybody upset and is causing the world to end. And I think a, a lot of times, our you need to to take a couple steps back and, and figure out, you know, let time go by in order to assess whether or not somebody has been a successful president, whether or not somebody has been a failure as a president. I mean, one of the classic examples of that is when Harry Truman left office in 1952, a little bit before my time, but the general consensus was that he was a failure as a president. I think history has been 
I don't know, very kind to President Truman and said, well, you know, maybe there's a lot of the stuff that he did that people did not appreciate at the time and he deserves credit for. So 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. How will President George H.W. Bush, how will he be remembered? Will it be as a good president? Will it be as an average president? Will it be as a bad president? How will he be remembered and perhaps how will you remember him as well? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're back to discuss in just a moment. It's 1240. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1243. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You know, I, I think it's very difficult to I, I remember the, the, the Bush years and what it was like back then, it really was a, a different time. I mean, keep in mind, President Bush was president when the Cold War ended. And that's something, if you are of a certain age, you, you, the Berlin Wall came down. And, and again, I understand it happened during his watch. A lot of people attribute it to President Reagan's activity. It doesn't matter. I mean, he was the president, you know, as the Cold War ended, you had that this new world order that, um, you know, essentially we entered into, you had a Republican president who, like Ronald Reagan before him, was able to do business with a Democratic Congress. It was it was just a different time. And, and maybe maybe it was this kind of kinder and gentler time. And I mean, I understand politics isn't being bagged. There was always a lot of infighting, but it, it was a different era. I also think that regardless of what you think about the Bush years, George Bush was a class act. I mean, you you never had to, You it would be unthinkable to even consider stories of President Bush having, uh, you know, a, a sexual affair with an intern in the White House or, you know, with being intimate with some pornographic film star. That You just even think about those types of, of things. It was just sort of unthinkable when it came to President Bush. You might think that President Bush was so stodgy, he wasn't any fun or whatever, but you you just wouldn't think of that. Now, it, it's. I, I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day, and he said, you know, it's just, when did we get to this point where, you know, we're, we're having these constant conversations about, gee, did the President of the United States, you know, what was the impact of him sleeping with some pornographic film actress or another President of the United States being involved in an affair in the Oval Office with an intern? I mean, those things, it was a kinder, gentler time, and those things were just unthinkable. I mean, during the Bush administration, 414-799-1620, Kevin in Brookfield. Kevin, you're on WTMJ. Well, I, I agree with your comments. I think he was a class act, and I think generally he's going to be remembered as having a, a positive, proactive foreign policy and uh, maybe not so favorable, favorably on the uh, domestic front. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the tax situation, you know, obviously jumped up and bit him, but Let's give the man credit. He reached across the aisle and he and he did a deal. They were deal makers. Yes, and I, I think I think we've lost that art. No, and and, it, and it's it, I don't think there's any question. One of the one of the big differences between politics in 2018 and politics in 1992 is we we become so tribalized, and, and now 
you, you don't have the ability to, to make deals. And I say that about the right and I say that about the left. You can't reach this compromise because if you do, you're going to be viewed as a sellout to whatever your constituency is. If you're a conservative, you've got to you know be 100% on this. Or if you're a liberal, you've got to be 100% on that. And it makes it almost impossible to get any sort of compromise. And I, I, I don't know if that's where the American people are. I don't know how we got here, but it is frustrating. And it, you know, George Bush exemplified the opposite of that. Somebody who, like you say, was the, had the ability to make a deal, which sometimes means you have to compromise. Right. I, the other thing I'd say is in their defense and everyone's defense is, you know, the, the instant uh, media. You know, yeah. you, you, you know that everything they do is instantly reported. Everybody knows it all around the world. And my goodness, they don't even have time to, to shake hands and, and right. you know, slap each other's back and have a drink together and, and make a deal. Because even if they walk across the lawn, it's reported instantly. And right. And, and let me tell you, I, I agree with you, but let me take it one step further. It's not just the instant media, the, the 24-7 media, but it's the ability that everybody has now to react to something. I mean, it's the whole social media thing. So you have somebody that floats an idea of maybe some degree of compromise, and then you get everybody on the tribe, left or right. Again, I, I, don't, I don't care. Then they're out there saying, oh, this is a sellout. This is terrible. And you have this instant feedback that's out there by the screaming trolls that are on the Internet that are immediately denouncing this stuff. There's no time to digest everything. Everybody reacts with this sort of knee-jerk reaction to stuff. Right. That's a great, that's a great point. So what it takes is a, an extra step of leadership. For somebody to go, you know what, guys? I, I don't care what you say. Right. I'm going to do this. We're going to sit down, and we're going to strike a deal. That I and you have to put country before politics. Right. No, country thanks. Before party. Yeah. No. Th- thanks for calling. And, and we, there's no question in my mind that we have have gotten away from that. I mean, you do what I do for a living. It's just interesting because if you try to take a position that you consider, or at least I consider, to be smart and reasoned and, and maybe a truly balanced thing, you should just see it. And I'm just a radio host. You, you get the, these emails from people on the right. Oh, I'm never listening to you again. You're, you've gone over to the Democrats. Or, um, oh, my gosh, how can you be on the air? You're such a you know right-wing hater or stuff like that. And it's like, well, okay, no, there, there are... There are middle grounds that reasonable people can come to, but I think one of the things that's made it more difficult for that is again, you've got the social media out there, you've got the you've got the hit machines on both the left and the right um, that are just out there looking to create these various issues, and and that's kind of how they play out. All right, let's go to a couple texts, Jeff. I think and hope that history will remember George H. W. Bush for his lifetime achievements, not just as the 41st president. By the way, I think that's a very, very fair comment. He has been a class act his entire life. I think you get a better perspective with former Canadian Prime Minister Mulroney's speech at the National Cathedral. Um, yes, here's Jeff and Fox Point saying, "Hey, you know, I mean, I think he deserves to, you know." Get credit for handling Hussein while emphasizing his mild demeanor and how he showed that you didn't have to be a mean person to be an effective politician. That might be close to how he is remembered. Well, I mean, I guess that's going to be the underlying question is, will he be remembered as a as an effective politician? He lost in he lost in 1992. But candidly, again, that was there were two factors. Ross Perot siphoning 18% of the vote away which which in my opinion led to you know Bill Clinton being elected that was number 1 number 2 i, I think every once in a while in politics you have people who just want a change sometimes 
for change's sake, and you you have that new bright shiny object that comes along. When when George W. Bush, um, after after eight years, people were ready for a change, right or wrong, and and that led to you know Barack Obama. You can go back. I think in 1992, after eight years of President Reagan and four years of President Bush, I think you can argue that America was kind of ready for a change, and, and Bill Clinton came along, and he was the young guy and photogenic, and he, he spoke to a different generation, and so you know he he came in. I don't think that that means necessarily that President Bush was a bad politician. Sometimes you just get caught up on the waves of change. In any event, he was, I think, by all standards, just an incredible man. I think he was a great public servant. You just look at what all the different things he accomplished. And he was somebody that I think in retirement, from after stepping down from the presidency, I think he epitomized what a former president should be. And I have no doubt that he will be missed. It's 1251, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1254, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we're going to talk about what's been going on in Madison. It is one of those situations, and I've mentioned this before, where absolutely everybody is wrong. It, it, it doesn't, you know, normally, normally somebody somewhere ends up getting it right. The protesters are wrong. The Democrats are wrong. The Republicans are wrong. Everybody has managed to be wrong in what is going on in Madison. (laughs) I'll tell you what's right, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes um, after the top of the hour news. Here's one of these stories. It it was amazing videotape, and I I honest to goodness forget what television station I was watching the other night, but my my wife called me in and she said, have you seen this? And I I said no, and then I ended up watching it. It was there's this guy. Are you familiar with the term Gru who's producing the show today? Are you familiar with the term porch pirates? Okay, right, right, exactly. I mean, a, a porch pirate is somebody who, depending on how sophisticated you are, it, it could be just you run up on a porch. For example, somebody, especially this time of year, people order Christmas presents or whatever to be delivered by FedEx or Amazon or, or whatever, and they put them out on the porch. You're not home, so they drop these off on the porch. A porch pirate is someone who runs up and takes the package that is left on on your doorstep. Now, some are more sophisticated or, or at least perhaps more brazen than others. You will have some of these porch pirates who essentially follow like the the delivery trucks and you know they'll stay a couple blocks behind and they will follow in the wake kind of like the guy who cleans up um, after the elephant in a circus parade they will you know watch where the federal express guy or whoever drops off the ups driver drops off the package they'll wait a couple minutes and then they'll run up and they'll take it off the porch one of the things and it's an occupational hazard of being a porch pirate is more and more people nowadays have cameras so they, they see what goes on on the porch. Now, these porch pirates don't care. They are so brazen that it doesn't matter to them if they're being filmed, if they're being caught on film. They don't care. They just want whatever the package is. Well, if you haven't seen this videotape, it's amazing. Uh, police in Greenfield recently arrested a guy who apparently stole 175 packages not one, not two, not five, not ten, not fifty, not a hundred. A hundred and seventy-five packages. Thirty-one-year-old guy who was taken into custody December first after a police officer recognized the vehicle captured by surveillance 
cameras from previous package thefts. So in other words, the guy was using his car or a stolen car or whatever, but it was the same car, and he was drive using that to pull the heists. And on some of the, the cameras that they had out in front of some of these houses, they captured the vehicle. So the cops knew what the vehicle was. Ultimately, they, they found the vehicle. They were able then to find the guy. Officers then apparently go into the man's apartment or whatever, and they find 175 stolen packages, 175 stolen packages. And, of course, this is just what they found. Who knows how many packages that this guy actually ended up stealing, but it was this systematic thing of taking people, you know, packages, presumably off of people's porches, or if you could somehow get into the common areas of apartments, taking them. But this, I mean, this guy was a one-person crime wave who ended up stealing stuff in order to benefit himself Charges haven't been issued yet, but I'm sure the district attorneys is looking at this. Some people would argue, oh, this is kind of a victimless crime. They got their packages back. Who care? So I will tell you, this is one of the reasons why I would probably never be reelected or elected as a judge, because if I heard about this, especially given the fact that you have one of these people who's just it's not one or two. But it's clearly kind of a way of life and going around and trying to steal packages off of people's porches, particularly around this time of year. That would be one of the things where if I were the judge, he would be a guest of the state of Wisconsin for years and years and years. If that sounds harsh, well, then it sounds harsh. All right. When we come back, I want to talk about what has been going on in Madison over the last 48 hours. And we'll let you weigh in as well. It's 1259. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 107, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, the, the big, it's become a, a national story out of, of Madison. And the headlines in Washington Post and the New York Times and other similar sort of publications is, all right, the, the evil Republicans, or at least that's the implication, in an effort to try to use their gerrymandered power what they're doing is they're stomping on democracy by passing all these different bills aimed at restricting the authority of the incoming governor and the incoming attorney general. So that, that's the way this is kind of playing out nationally. Now, as I have said for the last couple of days, and I know you may disagree with me, I think when you have lame duck sessions, in other words, you have uh, legislators who may not be there or when you have a change of power. For example, the Republicans are going to continue to control the Assembly and the State Senate. Matter of fact, their grip on the State Senate is even more. But you have a Democrat governor and a Democrat attorney general coming in. When you have a change of power, I don't think you should be making major changes in the way things operate in an effort to try to hamstring, uh, again, the incoming administration. I have felt this way, well, uh, forever, and I feel this way now. It is not to say that I disagree with a number of the things that were done yesterday and, and early morning hours today, but the fact that they're being done clearly in an effort to restrict the power of Tony Evers, who I, 
look, I, I wish him the best. I don't think I, – I, I hope he's not able to implement a number of his policies because I think they're going to be very bad for the state. But at the same time, if it was good enough for Scott Walker to have these powers, I don't think the legislature – before Evers comes in, should be changing the rules of the game. I, I just don't. If the legislature had concern about maybe how the governor or the attorney general has too much power, they had all sorts of opportunities to change it. You could have taken up all these bills in the spring, but by waiting till this lame duck session, it leaves you open to, number one, extremely bad optics, and number two, claims that you know you are uh, essentially being unfair to the incoming administration. I believe that, and that's why I think, again, the, the optics are, are bad. Republicans don't care. They went ahead and did it. My guess is the governor is going to sign most of this stuff, and, and then there will be litigation. Who knows? Who cares? There's always going to be litigation. But I just think it was wrong. I, I don't think regardless of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, when you have, you're going to about to lose control or power in one chamber, or in this case, the governorship, I, I don't think you should be making major changes to the rules. I, I have always believed that. Now, having said all that, that this, this outrage that we are getting is the height of hypocrisy. As I tweeted out and have pointed out repeatedly, I remember when Jim Doyle was the governor and Democrats controlled the Senate and the Assembly. assembly That was back in 2010. Scott Walker had been elected and Republicans in a wave election had taken control of the state Senate and the state Assembly, and they were waiting to take over power. What did Democrats try to do? Well, they tried to pass a whole bunch of, of union contracts because they knew if Walker came in, now I don't think they knew Act 10 was coming, but they knew if once Scott Walker came into power, his view, and once the Republicans took over, his view of some of these long-term contracts with state employees was going to be markedly different than the Democrats' view. So they tried to pass these contracts, which if it had passed, would have hamstrung the incoming Republicans from doing what they wanted. And Republicans in 2010 had a a mandate. You can argue that they had a much greater mandate than, say, Tony Evers has in 2018. But regardless, Democrats tried to use a lame duck session to get this through. And they would have succeeded, but for the fact that um, Russ Decker, who was a state senator at the time and a Democrat, he said, I'm not on board with this. And they called him a traitor, and there was all this outrage about it. So I, I just bring this up because when, when I've listened to some of this rhetoric over the last couple of days, this is an unprecedented power grab. It's like a third-world country. It's like a banana republic out there in Madison. I, I, and this is coming from a lot of the left. I don't remember any of that being said from the people who are now so outraged. I don't remember any of that being said in 2010 when the Democrats were in power and they were trying to, uh, again, appease a certain constituency of theirs and would have done it were it not for the defection of one senator. My point here is both sides do it. And for anybody who thinks that, oh, this is something new or this is something unique that the Republicans are doing that the Democrats would never consider doing because they're more noble, uh, that that's 
that's a bunch of you know what because that <laughs> i mean just a few years ago democrats tried to do the same thing so let's put this all on the same wavelength here this is something that people do when they have that parties do when they end up having power period at the same time i i don't think it's good policy i think that candidly the Republicans should have just left well enough alone if they were concerned about, gee, have we given the governor too much power? Well, there was a chance to rein that in, and maybe that should have been legislation that was proposed and debated in February or March or April or, or whatever. They had plenty of time to do it. Now it does make them look like they're just sore losers and bad sports when, I mean, I think the truth is this is just an exercise of political power, but both sides end up doing it. That's not the aspect of the story that I want to discuss, because we've talked about this before. What I want to talk about is what has been going on in Madison over the course of the, the last two days. And that is the return of the protesters. Now, I know ever since Act 10 that the protesters have, have never gone away completely. You've always had kind of this, this ragtag group of people, the solidarity singers that, that show up like, like every day and hang out and sing a couple songs. But but yesterday and the day before were to an extent sort of like 2011 redo. I was kind of thinking, hey, 2011 is calling and, and they want their protest back because you had some of the same people, I think, who were probably protesting in 2011 storming into the Capitol. And the argument is, we, this is what democracy looks like. And here you, you can't vote on this and shame, shame, shame and, and all the. All the same stuff that you heard, you know, 11 years ago. And, of course, I, I had to sort of laugh about that because, you know, all these people who were saying this is what democracy looks like. Well, they were the same ones in 2011 who were yelling and screaming, oh, you know, we, we can't have Act 10, despite the fact that people in 2010 had elected Governor Walker and had elected big Republican majorities. It's the same folks who remember the Democrats in the state Senate who who fled, who actually fled to Illinois to try to delay Act Ten. Okay, well, where where were all the pro? That's was that's what democracy ends up looking like, and so it kind of culminated yesterday, where again you had the efforts to try to take over the Capitol and things like that. But but yesterday there was the Christmas tree lighting, which was which was going on. Let me let me share with you the way. Fox 6 reports this. Demonstrators booed outgoing Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker on Tuesday during a Christmas tree lighting ceremony, at times drowning out a high school choir with their own songs in protest of Republican efforts to, uh, again, change the powers of the incoming governor. The governor, wearing a Santa tie, appeared on phase as he flipped the switch, while one protester shouted, Hey, Walker, go home! He left without taking questions. Um, he also signaled support for the measures, but he also tweeted he can handle the shouts, but he urged the protesters to leave the kids alone. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want to talk about the return of the protesters. And and I guess my question is, is this an effective way to try to deal with political differences? Or is this just yet another example that, you know, in Wisconsin, 
we continue to have people who, I don't engage in these, these chi- what I will describe as these childish exercises simply to either give themselves something to do or to vent at things that they don't like. You know, we've seen this. We saw it with Act 10. We saw it with people showing up and screaming and shouting down Governor Walker when he was at the openings of State Fair and things like that. And now you have the Christmas tree lighting ceremony where you've got a lot of kids and you've got kids' choirs and you have people screaming at Walker and trying to shout down and sing over kids that are singing their songs. 414-799-1620. And by the way, this isn't about do people have a right to protest. I get it. I understand that. But really, you show up at the Christmas tree lighting and decide that this is the opportunity that you're going to use to try to shout down the governor and sing over kids' choirs? Is this a is this really a sort of tactic that people want to embrace? 414-799-1620. We discuss in a minute. It's 117. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 121, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Look, I'm sympathetic to some of the objections the left has to what the Republican majority did in this lame duck session. But the the reaction, in my opinion, is so incredibly over the top. And it's also hypocritical in many ways, but it's just so over the top. You have all these people that are storming the Capitol. You're trying to deny democracy. You have people that are shouting. The governor's at the tree lighting, for goodness sakes. You've got a children's choir. And these people are so out of control that they're shouting down and singing their crazy protest songs to drown out the kids' choir, for goodness sakes. Chuck in Milwaukee. Chuck, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Well, these protests are going to continue, and eventually they'll turn on Evers. That'll be even better. Um, well, I, you know, I, I don't know, because, gee, like I, I said, like eight, eight years ago, when Democrats were trying to do the same thing in a lame duck session, they weren't able to pull it out. I don't remember protesters that were showing up and that were objecting to this. I, I guess maybe we, we have been become so radicalized that if if Evers isn't far enough to the left that he might he might lose some of the audience. I th- thanks for call. I, I don't know, but at the same time, and again, I, I appreciate that people have the right to protest. But really, you know, we're talking about some administrative changes and rules, and this is the type of thing that you're so outraged about that you're going to show up and you're going to, I don't know, disrupt a Christmas tree lighting thing or a holiday tree lighting thing or whatever you want to call it. Um, here's a text, Jeff. Jeff, I, shep- I chaperoned my son's field trip at the height of the protesting years ago. The parents had to shield the kids from the out-of-control protesters. They were screaming and chatting obscenely in the kids' faces. We missed out on quite a bit of the tour because they wouldn't leave the kids alone. Well, that's that, that's... This this is what happened over the last couple of days. Now, it wasn't to the scope of Act 10, but again, it was this incredible overreaction that's out there. And you do kind of wonder, is, is this really how you think that you're going to get win hearts and minds? 414-799-1620. Rich in Sheboygan. Rich, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi. Um, I guess I guess the thing that I, I feel about this is they're showing these kids that it's okay to par- protest and stomp their feet if they don't agree with what's happening. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, right. That's that that's that's the idea. That is the message that's being sent. That if if you don't like something, well, storm the Capitol and try to scream and, and throw throw your own hissy fit. Right. That's the message that they're sending. 
And the thing is, with Evers becoming uh, elected uh, governor, you haven't heard anything yet about a recall. You know, <laughs> the the right wing just kind of oh, no. Well, goes I mean, with the flow. Well, right. Well, here here's the reality of this. I mean, I, I don't ever remember a situation where you would have Republicans or conservatives, you know, even at the height of the Tea Party movement, you know, you had respectful kind of rallies, and, and maybe the rhetoric got a little heated, but I don't remember people stalking, you know, Democrats and, again, disrupting, you know, events and things like that. It's just there is a different standard that's out there, and for people who might not remember 2011, it reared its ugly head again over the last two days in Madison. Yes, it has, exactly, and it's very unfortunate. Well, it is. I mean, th- thanks to call, but it, it's kind of like the new normal, and it is one of the reasons why I do roll my eyes. And again, this is coming from the perspective of somebody who, who I, I don't think the Republicans did the right thing with the, these lame duck moves. Somebody sent me a text just saying, "Well, how, how how could you how could you call them childish? How could you call these protesters childish?" I'm sorry, you shout down a children's choir at a tree lighting ceremony, and actually, childish is one of the nicest things that I could think to call you. Oh, how dare you call this? But you know, why don't you say what you think about the legality? I mean, yeah, you can challenge these actions. I, I think they're going to be upheld. Maybe not by a Dane County Circuit judge. But ultimately, I mean, I think the legislature has the power to do these various things that they did. I'm just saying I don't think it was a good exercise of that power. But, yeah, I think they're going to get past a legal thing. But, oh, how dare you call the protesters childish? Well, childish is a nice phrase for what they did. Karen, downtown. Karen, you're on WTMJ. Well, thank you for taking my call. Hi, Karen. I think it's outrageous what they've done. I don't care which side of the political spectrum you're on. To interrupt these kids who worked really hard to put on this beautiful program, and it's a festivity, and it's the holidays, it's yeah. um, it's it's un, it's right. unconscionable. Yeah, I mean, it, it's know, it's so childish, and you're right. That is the kindest <laughs> thing you could say. Right. I mean, it, exactly. I mean, I I understand you you can be outraged, and you can give money, and you can you know, there's all sorts of things that you can do. But they disrupted the tree lighting ceremony, well, for goodness sakes. from that to burning down gas stations. I mean, it's just wrong. It's just destructive. There's nothing productive about it. And it sickens me that I know people that probably went to that. Yeah. No, th- thanks for calling. I mean, again, that, that's the frustration about this. And this comes from my perspective. I started off this topic by saying I was pretty sure I was going to perhaps irritate people on all sides of the issue because, well, Jeff, how dare you say that the Republicans shouldn't have done this? I don't think they should have done it. But the reaction... The reaction was so over the top and so childish that, you know, even if you object to this lame duck session, do you really want to be part of that group that decided, hey, we're going to storm the Capitol and this is what we're going to do? Just asking. It's 127. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 135. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. What what happened yesterday, the, the... in my opinion, the completely and totally out of control protest, out of proportionate out of proportion protests the the fact that you've got that, that that usual group of people who are outraged and angry about everything this is what democracy looks like storming into the capital now these are the same people who uh, again didn't have any problems trying to ignore democracy when act 10 was being passed and they were protesting trying to stop again elected legislators from you know doing what they were arguably elected to do but you you had I get it. I understand that's Madison. It's part of the protest culture, and it's part of the kind of angry left that you have around here. And that, that's all well and good. But 
even within that, there are, I think, limits. And you had yesterday a disruption of the, the Capitol tree lighting. You had a kid's choir that was singing. They practiced for God knows how long to sing. And you had these protesters that decided they were going to sing their own songs and try to essentially shout down the kid's choir. I do have one text. Jeff, the protesters were expected, considering what the agenda was on yesterday's session. So maybe the tree lighting and teenagers singing should have been rescheduled. <laughs> what? All right, we've got this scheduled tree lighting, but because we should expect that you're going to have these boorish, out-of-control protesters, we should cancel this. Well, well, maybe maybe the protesters should learn to, I don't know, behave themselves properly. It did remind me, and during the break, I, 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 was, I forgot how long ago this had happened, but it was June of 2011. Again, this is the height of the Act 10 thing. In, in Madison, they had, it was the start of this Special Olympics, and Governor Walker was there, and they had all these Special Olympians and things, and, and this was, again, we're having the Special Olympics, and it you had a lot of the, you know, athletes, the young athletes who participated in the Special Olympics, and you had some of these folks who decided that this would be a good opportunity to have a zombie die-in event. So what they did was they crashed the Special Olympics ceremony to stage their own Governor Walker protest. And at the time, Governor Walker said he thought it's appalling. He said, I can take it. But it was an event about honoring the athletes of the Special Olympics, and we shouldn't be drawing in people who aren't involved. Well, that's, I I think... I think it's pretty accurate there. So I, I, I just, for anybody who thought that the protests of 2010 and 2011 were in the rearview mirror, the, the answer is no. And what's happened over the last couple of days, and again, this is from the perspective of somebody who just doesn't agree with the optics, even though I perhaps agree with the policies of some of the things that were done. I think Republicans shouldn't have done this. But the, the reaction, the counter-reaction, just so completely and totally over the top, which now I, I think it portends poorly for the next several years because I have no doubt that every time the Republican legislature decides that they don't want to go along with something that Governor Tony Evers wants, we will probably see a lot of the usual suspects back out again trying to figure out what's the next thing that they can disrupt. All right, let's let's switch gears. A couple weeks ago, there was a report issued by the, the U.S. government indicating that climate change is a problem and that climate change, if not checked, can result in the U.S. losing gross domestic product by um, within like the next 80 years or so. Now, the one thing the report didn't make didn't really address was the fact that gross domestic product is expected to increase dramatically over the next 80 years. So even if it's 10% less, it's still going to be a lot greater than where it is now. But I, I, but I digress. All right. So it, it said, look, climate change is something that needs to be dealt with. As I argued at the time, the biggest problem that the world has with regard to climate change isn't automobiles in the U.S., and it's not Al Gore jetting around the world on on his airplane and using fuels. The biggest problem, in my opinion, that we have towards climate change is the fact that you have some countries that are developing, India, for example, China, for example, and that they're developing based on coal. Coal, which is a pollutant, 
coal, which contributes to all the problems that you have with the use of fossil fuels and the gases and things like that, the greenhouse gases. But as long as China wants to develop its economy and China decides, hey, coal is cheap and it is plentiful, as long as India and I'm just singling out those two countries, but there's others as well. As long as they decide, and I, I was talking about this the other day, there's a story about how, you know, up until five or six years ago, India had the, these huge problems. They were having all these electricity shortages, and then they started going to coal, and now that electricity is, is plentiful. Well, I mean, that's just the reality. Yes, the U.S. can do whatever the U.S. does, but unless you get a handle on, again, countries like China, and countries like India, huge countries with massive populations who are turning to the cheap uses of things like coal, well, whatever the U.S. does is going to be sort of a drop in the bucket comparatively. So that's the overall problem that you have. But there's a more specific problem as well. You have perhaps paid attention to all these protests in France over the course of the last couple weeks, you've had these these yellow vest protesters who've taken to the streets and they're setting things on fire and there's damage to the Arc de Triomphe or, or, or whatever. And they're, they're protesting. What are they protesting? They're protesting the fact that the president of France wanted to raise taxes on diesel fuel by 24 cents a gallon and on gasoline by 12 cents a gallon. Now, in France, they already have high vehicle fuel taxes to begin with. But these protests were all about the increase in the fuel taxes. All right. Follow the lot, the, the dots here and stick with me. Why did, why did the government of France, why were they increasing the fuel taxes? Well, I mean, there's a couple reasons. First of all, it generates more revenue. All right, no, no question about it. They generate more revenue, but the only the other reason, and one of the principal reasons that they were talking about increasing these taxes, was, as the president of France argued, the taxes were needed to curb climate change by weaning motorists off petroleum products. That was one of the expressed reasons. We want to, we, if we, we accept the fact that, you know, use of fossil fuels and this gasoline and stuff like that, that that is one of the things that contributes to our, our global warming crisis or our climate change crisis. So what we're going to do is we're going to increase the cost. We're going to increase the taxes on these products in an effort to try to get people to change their habits, to drive less, et cetera, et cetera. And what was the result of it when they tried to do it in France? They had people take to these streets to the point that the, the president of France had to back down. They said, okay, look, it's that no, no tax, nothing is worth disturbing the unity of this. So I, I understand this is a complicated issue. Believe me, I, I get it. And I'm one of these people who does believe that, you know, you have a global warming effect that's going on. Now, again, I think it's mostly due to the fact that you have these developing countries that are, you know, developing and they're using cheap energy and things like that. But one of the solutions that has always been out there is if we want to decrease our reliance, say, on fossil fuels or whatever, petroleum products, one of the ways we do it is we have to increase taxes. So let me tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you willing 
to pay more in taxes, not not to pay for the roads, not to generate more revenue that government can spend in some other fashion. Are you willing to pay more in taxes in an effort to try to combat global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it? 414-799-1620. Because that's the heart of it. You've got to discourage use of these different things. And some of the countries aren't doing it. They tried to do it in France. They tried to say, all right, we want to discourage people from using these petroleum products as our way of trying to contribute to stopping climate change. And the result was people took to the streets to riot. All right. Are we being hypocritical? If we care about the environment, if we care about climate change, should we be willing to pay lots more in taxes for our gasoline to try to discourage people from driving automobiles or force people to electric cars or whatever? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. It's 145. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 149, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You, know, you, you probably heard about all these, these riots that they've had in, in France over the course of the last couple weeks, and you might have heard it was over a gas tax. What you might not have realized is one of the principal reasons why France was imposing this extra tax was in an effort to combat global warming. The thinking was we've got to try to wean our citizens off of these petroleum products. So what we'll do is we'll increase the taxes and force them to drive less, use less petroleum. That was the thinking. And people took to the streets and had riots. So this is my question for everybody out there who's concerned about global warming one way or the other. I mean, are are you willing, this is where the metal meets the meat, are you willing to pay more in taxes, for example, to I don't know, discourage driving of, of automobiles or force people into electric cars? Are you willing to do that? Let's start with Dan in Elkhorn. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how are you? Real well, thank you. What do you think? I think that global warming's a myth. I think that the Earth just naturally adjusts itself over periods of time. Sometimes we're warmer, sometimes we're colder. I remember when I was a kid back in the 70s, we had blizzards and snowmobiles, and now you don't see right. that anymore. But now they're saying uh, another... Uh, Winter might be coming in, so. No, I believe the Earth naturally adjusts itself. I think uh, mm-hmm. fossil fuels and taxes for that is a waste of money. Yeah, well, they, I mean, see, I, I, I don't go all that. I mean, I guess I, I try to look at this rationally. And, and for example, I, I look at developing countries. I look at countries like China. I look at countries like India. And I see that over the last 5 or 10 or 15 years, there's been a real towards turn, towards development. And, and they're burning more coal. And they're using more electricity and things like that. And I guess it does make sense to me that that, ha- that is having some sort of impact on the overall, you know, global climate I, and I appreciate that and I really so I'm not one of these deniers my question though is you know what do you end up doing with it and here and you know you saw this in France you know you, you said all right they said we're we're going to we're going to try to do our own little part we're going to try to wean people off of petroleum products and people in France took to these streets you know they rioted over this so you know should we be a leader what would what could we do that here Bill in Mount Pleasant Bill you're on WTMJ uh, hi, thanks for calling. Uh, yes, sir. Thanks for calling. Call. Um, I, you know, I the way I see it is, I mean, every 
your your taxes are going to increase your revenue. And what I mean, even in the United States, any any place, especially a socialist country, is going to use that money for their own benefit, one way or another. If they had a plan saying that this extra tax money has a place for it to go to improve on solar power, electric power, whatever it is, that they would use that tax only for that purpose. Mm-hmm. I would say that they have uh, re- a reasonable way of doing it. But if you don't do that and you sort of say, no, this is just a curb it from uh, right. you wanting to drive your car, I don't think that really is uh, what's going to happen to the money. Look at our Social Security fund, how it was raided, and how many times here. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, thanks for going. Well, I mean, that, that's what they said. The argument is we're going to try to make a difference. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to John in Crandon. Yeah, hi, Jeff. You know, I don't think we need to pay any more taxes. We already have one of the highest gas taxes. And I would further that by saying taxing people for using petroleum products without a viable alternative is a lot like, you know, centuries ago when they would throw uh, people into the volcanoes to appease the volcano god. The tax, the tax money will never go to anything other than spending for nonsense, you know? Well, and it might not make a difference. Let's take a quick break. Uh, Thanks for the call. Let's take a quick break. Well, I swallowed wrong and get my voice back. It's 153. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 156. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Crew who's producing the show today and always. Poor John. Next time he calls in, calls in the show, has a valid point to make, happens to call in at the moment that the host is, like, choking. And so, you know, we have to kind of cut him a little bit short. Next time he calls up, he goes to the front of the list, okay, for, for whatever. So sorry about that, John. Just when I swallowed something, it kind of swallowed wrong. Let's talk to Don and O'Connor Walk. Don, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, Jeff. Um, I'm calling the – I've done enough reading to understand global warming is real. I also understand that we're contributing to it as, as mankind. Mm-hmm. With that said, though – I hate taxes as much as anybody, but I also have kids and grandkids, and I keep thinking if we keep our heads in the sand and say do basically do do nothing, our kids, grandkids, and so forth are going to pay for it. So I don't think we have an option. We need to do something for future generations. Well, I guess my question is, is is what? I mean, and the reason I ask that is if, it, I mean, my premise is that the biggest contributors to it is, again, these industrialized nations, the, your, your Indias, your Chinas that are, you know, using coal and they're using it to develop energy and things like that. I mean, if that's if that's the principal cause of this, I mean, what, what can we realistically do? Is it is it reasonable to say, you know, tr- increase taxes so people don't drive as much? I mean, they tried that in France and it didn't work very well. Yeah, and, and, and the extent to which taxes get increased, I'm not sure what the answer to that. I do. I am willing to pay more taxes to okay. do something to have change. And, you know, China's investing in alternate energies too. I read an article about yeah. them. Out. They're investing in solar and yeah. wind power. So. Yeah, no, and thanks to that, they are. But it's 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 a fraction of what they're doing with uh, again again coal and things like that. Difficult question. I just point out they tried to do it in France, didn't work. It's one fifty eight. It's 207, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. All right, the president of the UW system, Ray Cross, says 
all the UW employees, UW system employees are are underpaid and we need to do something about it. Now, now here's here's the deal. In 5 of the last 8 fiscal years, UW system employees have received no pay plan increases. Increases, I guess, have averaged less than 1% since between 2011 and 2019. So the, the people that work at the UW system, the raises have averaged about 1% a year over that period of of time. Okay, they've, so it, it has not, the wages have essentially been been frozen. They are very, very static. No, no question about that. And Ray Cross says, well, this is, this is hurting our ability to attract and to retain, you know, some of the high quality employees that we want to have. So his solution to that is to say, okay, for the next two fiscal years, I want the money. I want to be able to give everybody that works in the system. Everybody that works in the system, I want to be able to give them 3% raises one year and then another 3% raise the second year, 6% total over two years. Now, first of all, can I see a show of hands? Can everybody raise their hand if you've had a 6% pay increase, you know, over the last two years? Huh. Rue, your hand did not go up there, did it? All right. No, I'm not not seeing a lot of hands that, that go up. But let me... Let me try to discuss this with you and, and get your reaction. Now, I understand that when you hear this story, he wants 6% wage increase over the next two years for all employees. Maybe your your initial knee-jerk reaction is, is he nuts? I, I mean, seriously, 6%? Come on. It, that's not the reaction th- that I have. It's not. I think, to tell you the truth, there might be some UW system employees who are certainly deserving of a 6% raise. There might be some UW employees who are deserving of a a 10% raise or a 15% raise. That, That is entirely possible. What I think is nuts about this proposal is the fact that it's going to be across the board, at least that's what the proposal is, for for everybody. Because the truth of the matter is, there are probably some employees who definitely deserve, are underpaid, and definitely deserve to have a pay increase. And if you don't give them a pay increase, it's quite likely that maybe you will lose their talents to somebody else, some other place, and, and you don't want to have that done. I have no doubt that there's some people who fit into that category. At the same time, my guess is there are other people who candidly are dead wood. <laughs> that I don't mean to be harsh about this, but but they're Deadwood, or maybe they're overpaid for what they do. The idea of just automatically saying we're going to give a six percent increase to everyone, I think, is crazy. Now, if he were saying, "Look, I want to create a pool. We're underpaid." And what we need to do is we need to have more money so we can distribute raises to the people that we think are most deserving of it. Well, then I think, you know, you you can have an argument about that. I think you can perhaps, you know, make a compelling argument if you have somebody who's just a, a premier, let's say a professor somewhere, and they haven't had you know, a pay increase or any sort of material increase in the last several years, and you're really worried that they're going to be recruited away and they're going to go somewhere else, 
or if you have somebody who's an administrator who's been locked in at a certain salary for the last three or four years with only negligible increases and they're doing just a, a kick butt type of job and you want to keep them. I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, hey, we should give this person, maybe we, we shouldn't just give them a 6% raise, maybe we should give them a 10% raise, and maybe we shouldn't have to make them wait you know, for two years to, to get that. I understand that. But the idea of a 6% raise across the board for everybody without regard to what job they do, how well they do the job, and things of the like, I think that should be a non-starter. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I'm not necessarily anti-raises, and it does look to me like the UW system, well, they, they've been operating with minimal pay increases, and they've been operating um, you know, with, with reduced budgets or frozen budgets for the course of the last several years. And maybe for some employees, that's not fair. But does that mean that you automatically give everybody who's working in the system a 6% pay raise? 414-799-1620. And my answer would be no. My answer would be, hey, why don't you, you figure out, you know, what we need to do and let's reward the people that we want to keep. Let's reward the talented folks. Let's reward the people who are doing really a great job. Let, let's, let's be managers. Let's decide who is worth stuff instead of just saying we're giving everybody a 6% pay increase. Am I missing something? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 213. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 215, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, the uh, UW System President, Ray Cross, he says, look, our, our salaries have been pretty much frozen over the last seven or eight years. Here's what I want to do. I want to give across-the-board pay increases to all UW System employees, 3% one year, 3% the next year, for a total of 6%. My response is, what? I mean, not that I'm necessarily against people getting raises. I think you have to reward talent, and I think you have to reward you know people who you want to, to keep or who have done a good job. But does that mean you just do it all across the board? My answer to that would be, no, I, I don't think so. If you want to create pools of money that you give away based on merit to the folks that you want to retain or the folks that are doing just a great job, that's one thing. But just 6% across the board, why? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Randy and Marinette. Randy, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yes, sir. Um, your idea is very, very non-union idea. You're talking about paying for people that have merit. Uh, the union right. idea is paying everybody because they're under the union umbrella. Yeah. Whether, they're, whether they're doing anything or whether they're not doing anything, they get paid. Right. And I guess I, I would say, look, let, let, let's say you've got somebody who's a law professor at UW Law School, for example, and the person is a shining star and a leader in research and all this type of stuff. And he's very he or she very much in demand. And you've got other all these other law schools that are trying to you know draw him away and you don't want or her away. And you don't want that to happen because it's just you've got a rising star on your hand. Well, in that case, maybe that person is deserving of a 15 percent raise. But, you know, but maybe there's somebody else who just stinks, you know, who, who's the deadwood that's there. Why would you give everybody a 6% raise? Let's reward the talent. And, all right, if somebody's not worth a raise, then they're not worth a raise. 
Yeah, but if if the Deadwood is a union member, they got to get raised. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess. No, th- thanks for the call. Well, well, then if that's the answer, then I think you say to the UW president, "No, I'm sorry, we're just not going to authorize this kind of this sort of money." Now, if you want to create pools where you're going to award merit pay, that might be a different uh, that might be a different idea. Let's talk to Rick. Rick, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Rick. Um, I sit I sit on a local school board, and we've done this since we enacted Act 10, essentially when we got rid of union contracts and um, implemented a handbook. We approve a percentage, um, say say a two two and a half percent pay increase every year, but it goes into a pool that the mm-hmm. administration then goes through and doles it out based on merit. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're not performing, if they're, um, they're they may get nothing. Um, if well. Yeah. They're not performing, they get non renewed. Um, right. <laughs> right. They're doing the bare minimums, they get, you know, nothing if they um, are doing certain, and we have a criteria of what they have to be doing. Right. And expectations. And that's the best way of doing it because, for one, uh, if you want to switch to a merit, you know, which I think most people can relate to, um, you know, you, you, you have to create some kind of pool and um, that's the only way to go about it because us as right. the people that are proving this, we don't know the, the frontline workers to be able to say, okay, that's okay, that's okay. So we're comfortable with this for our budget, this number. We trust our administrator right. to dole it out properly, and that's how we're going to do it. Right. Now, see, and if he had proposed something like that, I mean, I understand there's some people who have this knee-jerk reaction of, well, we, we, we shouldn't be giving public employees pay increases. Well, I, I don't buy into that. I mean, I think if people are, are, are underpaid or haven't had, you know, increases in five or six years or any material thing i i think it it's fair i don't i think people you know deserve raises but they should be based on on something more than gee we're going to give everybody a six percent raise i that's to right. me that's just and not fair it's a perfect opportunity he has to, to to send a message of well maybe you should be looking for a new job somewhere else to or we we we, we appreciate the work you've been doing instead of just giving it across I mean, right. that'd, be, that'd be offensive to me if I was a, a, a high-performing employee yeah. and I get a 6% pay increase and the guy who calls in sick and doesn't do half, half the work as well as I am gets the same pay increase. What's the motivation to do better? Well, well, exactly. You're sitting there saying, okay, well, wait. I, I mean, every and, and the truth of the matter is some people would say, Rick, it's hard for people to be able to – to be able to judge different employees, but I don't buy that. I mean, you know, the it, it, the the people, the bosses, they know who's doing the job, they know who's performing, and they know who isn't. And if they don't, then they should be out of their job. That, that's their job. They're supposed to know who the high performers are. And as a supervisor, you should be you should be making that clear what is expected of you. And right. If you're not doing that, well, then maybe those pay increases shouldn't be going to the supervisors either. Exactly. And th- th- thanks for the call. Right. I mean, it's just it's just one of those things. So I mean, I think. You know, when we see this, that you, you can't just have a knee-jerk reaction, or I don't think you should have a knee-jerk reaction saying, oh, well, we, we can't approve raises for people. That's that's not right. I think people are entitled to raises. And I also appreciate that if you have quality people and those quality people aren't being paid what they're worth and they're in demand somewhere else, well, what's going to happen is you're going to lose them. And, you know, at some point in time, you don't want to lose too many people like that. But it might be that in order to have to pay those people that you really want to retain, maybe that means that money's got to come from somewhere. And maybe that means you shouldn't be given 6% to the person that's not performing. Sheila in Brookfield. Hi, Sheila. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, I had some additional uh, thoughts. First of all, Randy, right before me, took some of my thunder. Just because you give raises to everybody across the board would definitely be a disincentive to the high performers. Why should they continue working if they're going to get a raise anyway? Right. But my additional thought was, 
why don't we get some more information? He's saying it's difficult to attract and retain. Well, what's their turnover rate? That's one thing. Also, are they giving bonuses to anybody? I don't know. Why is he only dealing with salary? Plus the fact that people who work at high, in higher education, a lot of people take those jobs anyway so that they can get a free or a lower-priced education. So right. there's benefits there that other people don't get. There's yeah. a lot more to consider here than just salary. Well, well, no, I think you make a very, very fair point. And then there, there's also a prestige element. For exa- I mean, for example, I, I actually have the average salary of professors in front of me. I pulled this up. Okay, like at Yale, the average salary is two hundred and three thousand dollars a year. Madison, it's around one hundred and thirty grand. Well, the reality is, if, if Yale comes calling, you know, you're, you're probably and the person wants to go. There, there's not some of these other factors or whatever. You're, you're never probably going to be able to increase the salary enough to match that plus the person's going to be teaching at Yale if that's what they're all about so you're right there's all these other factors that go in that are perhaps beyond money as well I agree yeah no thanks and so that's I mean and that's the balancing and again I'm not I'm not against giving public employees raises I mean, I, I, in the private sector, if, I mean, if you had to work year after year after year and, and people would say, hey, you're doing a great job, but there was never any sort of monetary increase. Well, I mean, I understand why people would get disillusioned, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not against this. I, I'm, I'm not. And it may, in fact, make sense. An across the board increase for everybody, though, I continue to think is the wrong way to go about it. Coup 23, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 225, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I have a, a warning about the next topic. Uh, right after the bottom of the hour news, there, there's an issue with regard to Santa Claus. So it's one of these topics. If you have some of those little pictures with the big ears, you, you might, I'll, I'll give you an advanced warning before we launch into it again. But this might be one that you want to maybe check out and come back a few minutes later. But we're going to be talking about a Santa Claus related topic coming up. I think it's going to lead to a fascinating discussion, but it is an adult topic if you follow my drift. The, you know, it, it's interesting. I've been watching, of course, what's going on in the stock market. Yesterday was just brutal. Stock market is closed today because it's a national day of mourning. Yesterday was just brutal. What the stock market down seven, eight hundred points, just a huge loss. And that that's after like a five hundred point gain on Monday. This is the Dow Jones. And it's it's because on Monday President Trump announces, or at least over the weekend, it's announced that there's going to be a sort of a cessation of hostilities with regard to tariffs between the U.S. and China, 90-day kind of cooling off period, etc. Stock market says that's great. It goes up. Yesterday, President Trump feels compelled to send out a tweet saying that he's the tariff man. He's the tariff man. And, you know, he's convinced that the way to go is to, again, get into these trade wars and use tariffs with China and things like that. And, of course, that causes investors to freak and the stock market plunges, you know, 800 points. So you have these huge swings that are going on. In many cases, they're not caused really by by rational business decisions. It's, gee, we're reacting to the politics of the moment and the story of the day. Oh, maybe we're not going to have tariffs. Boom, up 500 points. No, Trump calls himself the tariff man. Stock market down 800 points. One of the more troubling things, though, is, is, is going on with fundamentals. Up until recently, Apple has been an absolute license to make money. It, it just has everything Apple touched pretty much turned to gold. I Now, I am not, and I confess this, I am not an early adopter. I still, 
I still have an iPhone 5, you know, a 5 Plus or whatever. And, and I'm, I, I'm thrilled with it. I love the size. For what I use a phone for, it is perfectly fine. The battery died a few months ago. I was thrilled that for 40 bucks I was able to replace the battery, and I figure I'm going to get another you know, couple years out of this. At least I'm going to use it until, again, it becomes completely and totally outdated. Well, I, I recognize that I'm not... I, I'm pretty much unique. I understand that there's a lot of people out there who need to have the latest, they need to have the brightest, they need to have the newest shiny toy. Well, interestingly, because what Apple is finding is some of those new shiny toys, well, they're having trouble selling. Here's the story that's out there. Apple is pulling out all the stops as it is scrambling to prop up sputtering sales of its new iPhone XR. Um, yesterday, Apple took the unprecedented step of advertising a trade-in deal on its website, which would give the new iPhone XR an effective price of $449. This is despite the fact that the XR hit the market just five weeks ago and its retail market of 749 markup of 749 bucks make it by far this year's cheapest of the the new different iPhones that came out, $250 less than the next cheapest model. But apparently, you know, what's happening is they're they're not selling these. And so it's a supply and demand sort of thing. They're not selling them at the price that they want to sell them for. So now that they have their only choice is to let's, let's try to discount them. Let's try to offer offers and deals to get people to buy them. And this has a lot of people now wondering, all right, is there really this desire? Do people really need to run out and have the newest and the latest and the brightest, newest shiny toy? And what they're finding is that there's a lot of people who are saying, well, maybe I'm not really convinced that I, I need to drop another 750 bucks or I need to drop $1,000 just to get a new iPhone. Does it really add that much stuff over the one I bought last year or the one I bought two years ago or that one that that Wagner guy on the radio has been carrying around for the last five years or something? And a lot of people, I think, are starting to vote with their wallets and saying, well, maybe I really don't need that. So Apple now, I think for the first time in a long time, they're starting to dramatically drop prices, including on one of these newer models. Where does this lead? Time will tell. 235. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. So Gru, who's producing the show today, do you see that they, um, the, the Packers yesterday had to fire, they let go Winston Moss, who was the assistant coach, the assistant head coach for 13 years. I, I, I assume he, he knew what he was doing when he committed job suicide. That, that's the only way I, I can see it. Now, Mike, Winston Moss has been the assistant head coach. He's been there for 13 years. So he's kind of an institution. He's very, very well-liked, and everybody thinks he's a very, very good coach. Um, my guess is, number one, he was probably a little bit irritated that he got passed over um, for the head coaching job. It, it At least on an interim basis, it, it went to Joe Philbin, because Joe Philbin had prior experience you know, as, as a head coach. So anyways, they've Philbin's going to be the coach. So I'm sure Winston Moss was not happy with that. Secondly, probably figured that he didn't fit into the plans of whoever the next coach is going to be. Typically, they come in and they, they bring in most of their own staff. Sometimes they have a few holdovers. But So my guess is that Winston Moss saw the handwriting on the wall. Nevertheless, he decided to go out in, in he decided to go out in flames. He, he decided he took to Twitter. Now, again, typically speaking, 
if if you are an employee of an institution and you decide that you are going to go public with a, a gripe about the institution, you got to recognize that there are going to be consequences for that. That that's just the reality. It's one thing if you're on the outside, you know, you express whatever you want, you comment on stuff, but when you're taking a paycheck from an institution and you decide that you're going to go out and you're going to in one fashion or another flame them, you got to realize there's going to be some consequences. So here you have Winston Moss, he's been with the Packers forever. He is undoubtedly unhappy that he got passed over for the job and secondly recognizes that okay, he was he was Mike McCarthy's guy. Chances are he's probably going to be looking for a job anyhow. He decides to take to Twitter, and here's what he decides to write. Ponder this. What championship teams, I'm sorry, ponder this. What championship teams have are great leadership, exclamation point, period. It's not the offensive guru trend. It's not the safe trend. Find somebody that is going to hold number 12, that would be Aaron Rodgers, and everybody in the building to a hashtag Lombardi standard, period. Hashtag losing sucks. So, all right. Ponder this. What championship teams have are great leadership, period. It's not the offensive guru trend. It's not the safe trend. Find somebody that is going to hold number 12 and everybody in this building to a hashtag Lombardi standard, period. Hashtag losing sucks. All right, there is no way that you can interpret that other than being a knock on Aaron Rodgers. I mean, that that's that's just what it is. I mean, it's the, the clear implication of this is that, you know, you've got to hold Aaron Rodgers accountable and everybody in the building, but that—that's—that's that's what this is. Because you wouldn't say that if you thought that Aaron Rodgers was providing great leadership, or you thought that he was being held accountable. It's—it's a—it's a knock. <laughs> there's just there's just no question about it. Now, the, his next tweet, which came out not that long after the first tweet, tweet is: "The Packers have informed me that they're letting me go." <laughs> okay, well, that's, you know, I, I guess that, that could not seem to be too much of a surprise. Now, Joe Philbin, who, by the way, I think is a pretty class guy. I don't know that he's the best guy to coach the Packers moving forward, but I've always had a lot of respect for Philbin. He said that the decision to fire Winston Moss was not about one tweet, but rather how Moss fit on his coaching staff. And he said he's an excellent guy, great family guy, but, you know, it, it's time to move on. That may very well be the case. But, again, this is a lesson about social media. You will never, ever, ever convince me that even though all that stuff might be the case, I would find it hard to believe that Joe Philbin would have fired Winston Moss if Winston Moss did not decide to go public, use Twitter, and air dirty laundry. And he may or not be right, may or may not be right. I, I, I don't know. Is Aaron Rodgers out of control? Who knows? All I know is that when you kind of blast the organization in that fashion, you got to expect that there are going to be consequences, and in this particular case, the consequence is losing your gig. All right, it is 2.40. When we come back, a public school teacher, Santa Claus, what could go wrong with that? Stick around. 2.40, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 2.43, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, I want to talk about Santa Claus, so we're going to have a candid conversation, so I understand... Actually, that's the point of this topic, too. It's a little bit of a touchy subject, so a little bit of a warning. you got a couple of those little pictures with the big ears that you don't want to hear a discussion about Santa Claus, you know, check back in just a few minutes, I, I promise. Okay, 
All right, we've given you enough warning on this. Now, I happen to believe in Santa Claus. Let me, let me just go on record as saying that. I recognize, though, that there are some people who don't. And I recognize that there's some people who don't celebrate Christmas. I, 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 I get all that. And where you come down on, on Santa Claus, I think, is a matter of left to you know your your own your own sort of decisions and how you handle this as a parent with your children i i think that that's up to you and i know it's an issue that you know anybody who has young children has to face from time to time because you know your children will ask you questions because undoubtedly they'll talk to somebody at school or on the bus who say well we don't celebrate christmas and my dad or mom says there's no santa claus i mean i understand it is a difficult issue to have to deal with and have to process so it also leads to perhaps some uncomfortable conversations so here's the story i i want to discuss there is a first grade teacher in this public school in new jersey she actually as it turns out she's a substitute teacher so she goes to school and she decides to have a conversation with her first grade class about Santa Claus. And in, in the context and in the discussion with her first grade class, she apparently tells children in the class that Santa Claus is not real. That, that's that's what she tells them. Santa Claus isn't real. And then she goes on to say that the Easter Bunny is not real. There's no such things as leprechauns, etc., etc., etc. So she tells the kids this, and a number of children, you know, who have been told by their parents that Santa Claus is real, they come home and they 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 complain. They say, "Well, our, our teacher told us that that Santa Claus wasn't real. You know, what's the truth?" Which then leads to, as you might expect, some, you know, perhaps difficult and uncomfortable uncon- un- uh, conversations that the parents are going to have with the kids. All right, so th- there's no dispute that this, in fact, happened. That the teacher did, in fact, you know, say that Santa Claus isn't real, and then went on to talk about the Easter Bunny and, like I say, and other things as well. Well, the school district notifies you know all the parents that this happened and the school district also notifies people that this substitute teacher is no longer teaching for the school district in other words they fired her our number 414-799-1620 that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line was it an overreaction to fire this particular teacher for announcing to the first grade, grade class that that Santa is not real. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Did they do? Did the school district overreact? I mean, I know there's a number of people out there who say, hey, you know, schools should be teaching facts. And if in this particular teacher's mind there there is no Santa, if she believes that Santa Claus is not real, should she not feel free to articulate that to the students? That could be an argument you make, and should she be held accountable for articulating, you know, that position? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should the school have, should the school have fired the lady for uh, again, 
telling telling the kids that Santa doesn't exist. 414-799-1620. That is the Ekinet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're lining up the calls right now. I, I guess here's my starting point in, in trying to analyze this. And my first question is, why are we having this particular conversation in the, the first place? I mean, why, if you are a grade school teacher, why do you go down this particular avenue? I mean, this this isn't like an approved curriculum, say, on, on sex education, which could also be controversial, but at least you're, at least in that particular case, all right, you're, you're teaching what the curriculum is. I'm sitting there thinking, why would you have this conversation with first graders in the first place? For what, what good could come of this? 414-799-1620. Let's start with uh, Jan in Brown Deer. Jan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, Jeff. She has no business whatsoever discussing Santa Claus with first graders. Little first graders, six, seven-year-old kids. No, no, no. That's absolutely not okay. She does not want to celebrate Christmas. That's too bad for her. It's her. She has no business putting putting that fact into those kids' head when they're that little. That is just right. <laughs> it is just totally oh, right. I mean, I, I mean, I find my, my it, kid. I would be so mad at her. I would be so upset. She would, she would hear it from me, I'll tell you. She would hear it from me. Well, I mean, thanks for calling. Well, a, a number of children apparently were very upset because what the, what the first grade teacher said was contrary to what mom and, and dad had said. And so now you've conflict, created this conflict, and the kids come home and they say, well, well, mom and dad, you know, Miss So-and-so said that, that Santa Claus isn't real. You've been telling me Santa Claus, you know, is, is real. Here's a text that makes a point. They did exactly what they should have done. Nobody in their right mind would go tell first graders that there is no Santa Claus. I mean, I, I again, I just, I, I go back to the idea of, who who would think that that would be something that's appropriate? It's clearly not part of the curriculum. Why do you go down that route in the first place? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Timothy in Greenfield. Timothy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I agree with you 100%. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I it just it doesn't seem to me it's the role of of a public school teacher dealing with a first or second grade class, first grade class, to be pontificating on these sort of things, you know? Yeah. And, what, that's, that's something that my kids are, my grandkids are older now, but that's no place for a teacher to do that, especially with first graders. Right, because there's clearly, I mean, first graders at some point in time, first of all, I I think this is one of the beauties of childhood. I, I just, I, I really, I really do. And and why, why would you take that away from some kids? You know, I mean, why, why would you crush their dreams? Why would you crush the thing that they're looking forward to? Um, yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think that if if that was one of my kids or something like that, I think as soon as I heard that, I'd be at the school. Right, complaining. No, th- thanks for calling. I mean, I think a lot of parents. Um, were let's see here's some of our text they did not overreact she should never be in another classroom well i i don't know but she probably shouldn't be in that classroom 414-799-1620 let's talk to noah in west bend noah good afternoon hey jeff how's it going real well thank you what do you um, think i 
I agree with everybody. She was way, way, way out of line. I have two daughters. I'd be upset if, if their teacher did that. Without a doubt, I'd complain to the school as well. And I'd probably want her moved out of that class. I guess I just am having a hard time feeling like Santa Claus is worth losing your livelihood over. I mean, we this this woman literally she she lost her job. She yeah. has no way to pay her bills now. Well, she has to there. find another job. And, I mean, she has to well, find another right. job. Yeah, right. But I'm just saying, and that can be easy or it can be difficult, depending. But I just I don't know if I think it's worth again taking taking somebody's job over definitely it's a sit down definitely it's maybe move to a different class maybe an older class where we don't have these issues yeah. but i don't know about firing or that that I, well, really... I appreciate that no i guess I, i'm just saying that I, I think in my opinion this the bigger issue is the the lack of of judgment <laughs> to to go down this route in in the first place and it's one of those things where and, and this is coming from the perspective of somebody who who makes his living sitting in front of an open microphone for 3 hours a, a day doing a spontaneous radio show there there is a stop sign that that all of us have where you might think of something and then you know before it gets from your brain through your lips and then on the air or in front of a class, that stop sign is saying, "Yeah, you probably don't want to say that or you don't want to go down this route. And I guess to me, the lack of judgment in going into this topic in the first place with that 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 age group it is so over the top that that's why, I mean, I'm not sure they have much choice. Mark and Ford Atkinson. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Mark. Hi, there. Hi, Mark. Yes. Hi, there. What um, do you think? I agree. I think the teacher was she it was mean-spirited. And um, I know honesty is best policy, but let children be children. And imagination, I mean, she disrupted the trust in, her, in their parents. Right. And, um, you know, I think children should ha- be allowed to be innocent in their imagination. And, um, right. you know, let them believe in, in a character like this. Right. Well, and and if if she doesn't believe in Santa Claus, that that's fine. I mean, but you you don't have to get into a discussion with the kids about it. Why bring Santa Claus into the first grade class anyhow? I'm sure it's not part of the curriculum. Exactly. Exactly. She's in charge of children uh, to be taught in math and reading and um and and, and Santa Claus. That's a that's a fantasy world that children should should believe in. Let the kids be children. Yeah, exactly. And, and don't take that away from them. Here's an interesting. Thanks for the call. I have an interesting text. Our fourth graders. Uh, we have a fourth grader. Our fourth graders teacher sent an email saying that if your child doesn't believe in Santa, please remind them not to talk to others at school. If the topic came up in a class, she was going to change the subject and move on. So as, uh, again, not to create a controversy, what the teacher in your story did was absolutely terrible. I, 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 again, I, I agree, and it's, it's beyond just the Santa Claus thing. It's the whole issue of the larger discussion and judgment. And I, I think sometimes, while I tend not to go to the nuclear option all the time, sometimes there's some things you just, you just don't open certain doors and questioning the existence of Santa Claus in a first grade classroom. To me, that's one of them. It's 254. When we come back, we're going to find out what Scott and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's afternoon news. Please stick around.